0: And if you do so, if you please rise once again for the reading of God's holy word. we appreciate your patience, but this is one narrative and it's right to read it together and preach from it as a whole. And we are reminded that it's not just the preaching of God's word, but the reading of God's word that is effective in our lives. Begin reading again in verse 22, and ruled over Israel three years. God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the seventy sons of Jerob- Jeroboam might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. The leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along the way, and it was told to Abimelech. And Gale, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives. The leaders of Shechem put confidence in him, and they went out into the fields and gathered the grapes from the vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their god and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gale, the son of Ebed, said, "Who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbaal? And is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Why should we serve him?" Would that this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, Increase your army and come out. When Zebulun, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gale, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled, and he sent messenger to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gale, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem. And they are stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then, in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand first finds to do. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night, set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gale, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from their ambush. And when Gale saw the people, he said to Zebulun, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. The Zebulun said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Gail spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming down from the direction of Diviner's Oak. And Zebulun said to him, Where is your mouth now? You who said, Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despise? Go out now and fight with them. And Gail went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him, and many fell wounded. Up to the entrance of the gate, and Abimelech lived at Arumah. And Zebulun drove out Gale and his relatives, so that they could not dwell at Shechem. And the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And they looked and saw the people coming out of the city, so he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city. While the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all the day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it. And he razed the city and sowed it with salt. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of El Barith. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to Mount Zelman. He and all the people were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it and laid it upon his shoulders. And he said to the men who were with him, what you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and followed Abimelech, put him against the stronghold and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. When Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it, but there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and the women and the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it, and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. And he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father, in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Oftentimes, when we think of the judgment of God, we think in cataclysmic terms, Sodom and Gomorrah style, fire and sulfur from heaven. And that surely is a type of judgment, but that is not the only type of judgment that the Lord delivers. Because if you think that is the only type of judgment that the God serves, then your conclusion must be, well, God does not judge today. Today, because we do not see fireballs from heaven. So either all is well in the world and none are deserving of judgment, which we know is not the case, or that God does not judge today, which is a popular opinion, but also equally untrue. So is there another way that God oftentimes sends judgment into this world and into this life? And the answer is yes, It is a way that is perhaps more subtle than fireballs, but is nonetheless effective and in fact damning, because sometimes God gives over a people, a nation, to their sinful desires. Romans chapter 1 talks about this, does it not? As Paul says there, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Therefore, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts and to their impurities. And again, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passion. You hear what Paul is saying, that God gave over. God gave them up in judgment so that they would have exactly what they desire to have, that they would have their sinful desires, they would have their sinful passions, they ultimately would get what they want, but in their wants and in their passions and in their lusts, they are destroyed from the inside out. And that is truly the nature of all sin, isn't it? Of all unrighteousness. Though it seems desirable, though it seems good, it is destructive and evil to individuals as well as to a nation. And what we learn and what we learn from this passage is that sometimes the greatest enemies are not from without, but from within. And that is what we see in this long chapter, in this long narrative in Judges, that Israel lusted and whored after other gods and God sometimes used outside enemies like the Moabites and the Midianites and the Canaanites, but He also can use enemies within. He, in fact, can use the people's very own sin and desires to bring about judgment and to bring about ultimately destruction. And that is what the Lord does here. That's in the people's sin. And in their wickedness, they chose a sinful and wicked leader. One of Gideon's 70 sons, he is called Jeroboam here. You remember that was the alternative name for Gideon, but Gideon and Jeroboam are one and the same. And this son Abimelech, son of Gideon, is used to bring judgment on his own people. Now Abimelech himself will receive judgment because he too is a Worthless man, a man that was able to secure political power through a coup, killing all of his brothers to do so. And so this wretched man brings wretched rule as a form of judgment upon Israel, God's own people. And in the end, this wicked, worthless ruler and these wretched people under his rule receive the righteous judgment. Of God. And so we'll see that tonight in three points and make some applications of it. The wretched rise, the righteous rebuke, and then the ruthless ruin. First, the wretched rise as we read at the very end of chapter 8. As soon as Gideon died, you read this in verse 33, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal bereath their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on their every side and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Drubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. And so we see this common occurrence this old familiar refrain that the people turned again turned back to the foreign gods to the false gods that of Baal and Asherah and Baal-Bereith and it reminds me of that very picturesque quite grotesque proverb proverb 26:11 like a dog that returns to his vomit so a fool repeats his folly and that is exactly Israel in their sin. They continue to return to their folly. They continue to return to their vomit, as unpleasant as that is. But that is a true picture of sin, isn't it? That they go after their own gods. And in so going after their own gods, they do not remember the Lord their God. They do not remember the loving kindness that He had shown to deliver them from all of their enemies. They had also, as it says here, had forgotten the leaders that had enabled such freedom. As it says, they did not show steadfast love to the family of Gideon. They did not show kindness, steadfast love. You know that word, that Hebrew word. It is the word hesed. They did not show covenant faithfulness to Gideon's family. What is that saying? They, they did not have gratitude for the leader that the Lord had used to bring about their freedom. And when you do not have gratitude for good leadership, when you're not desiring it, when you're not looking for it, you're going to choose bad leadership under bad motivations. And that's exactly what took place. Israel had forgotten God and they had forgotten Gideon and forgotten his family. And as the scriptures so often say, you reap What you sow, and in fact, in this case, they reap the whirlwind that is Abimelech. Now, we read of Abimelech here in chapter 9. Again, he is the son of Gideon, but he is the son of Gideon by the way of a concubine, which demonstrates yet again, if you were with us, that Gideon was a bit of a mixed bag, used by God, but in many ways a shady character. As many of the judges were. It's a reminder that not all of the things in the scripture are prescriptive. You should not go and do likewise. And having multiple wives, as Gideon did, and having concubines would definitely be one of them. And yet that was Gideon. But this son of a concubine, Abimelech, obviously had political aspirations. And perhaps it was because he was the son of a concubine. Perhaps he was looked down upon. Perhaps he was even looked down upon by his own brothers. And therefore, perhaps he had that often called Napoleon complex. He felt inferior to others and therefore needed to compensate for it. He had to demonstrate that he was good enough and that he could measure up. And perhaps he had that I'll show you mentality and show them he does. We read in verses 1 and 2 that he uses his own mother and his own relatives as his campaign manager and family to stump for him. As he tells them, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam or Gideon rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. You hear the the stump speech, the campaign speech, as it were. Would you rather have those outsiders to rule over you or would you rather have one of your own? And obviously this campaign works because it says in verse three, he is one of our brothers. That's what the, the people, the leaders of Shechem say. And in fact, they make a campaign contribution to him. They pay him 70 pieces of silver from the treasury of Baal. In other words, they... They rob Peter to pay Paul, right? You really can't make this stuff up. And what does Abimelech do with this newfound treasure, with this newfound contribution to his political aspirations? Well, it says he hires a posse. He hires, as it says here, worthless and reckless fellows. He essentially hires derelicts to do what? To go and kill his brothers, 70 men, his own family. That is one way to handle family drama, isn't it? Again, not everything in the Bible is prescriptive. Do not go and do likewise. And I do not mean to make light of this horrific act because that is what it is. To kill is one thing. To kill your own countrymen is yet another And yet to kill your own brothers, your flesh and blood is a whole nother level of depravity. And with Abimelech, you have all three. A dastardly act, to say the least. And the people we read of Shechem are complicit in this. Why? Because they do not hang him. They do not say, hey, that's not what we wanted. That's not what we were contributing this money to. They don't bring him to justice. No, it says that they anoint him as king. Is this the leader that you truly want? You got what you wished for. You will not be ruled by 70. You will only be ruled by one, but that one is a murdering despot. Good luck. And yet there was at least one that was willing to say, this is not right. This is not good. And so we see with our second point, this righteous rebuke that one of the sons of Gideon was able to escape the murdering escapade of Abimelech and his worthless men, and that is Jotham. And to his credit, Jotham doesn't just slink away into hiding. That's perhaps what would have been better for him and for his own well-being. But he does not do that before issuing a public rebuke of Abimelech into the people and the leaders of Shechem. And he does so almost like Nathan the prophet did with King David in the form of a parable. You read of it in verses 8 through 15. It's quite an interesting parable. He likens the people of Shechem to trees. And he says, the trees of the king. And so they turn to the olive tree and say, olive tree, reign over us. And the olive tree essentially says, why would I do that? I have much more important things to do than to reign over you. And so he turns them down. And so the trees turn to the fig tree and the fig tree does the same. And so the trees turn to the vine and the vine says, I'm not going to do so either. And you see where this is going. There's a descending order of stateliness, if you could put it in the plant worlds. You begin with a olive tree and then a fig tree and then a vine. And yet at least all of them had some good to them. They all produce some good fruit, olives and figs and grapes, and yet all three of them reject the trees, requests to reign over them. And finally, the trees find one that will rule over them. We read of that in verse 15. The trees say to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble says to the tree, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. The bramble finally answers their request. But the bramble, if you don't know of anything of Mideastern agriculture, was good for nothing. The bramble tree was a nuisance. It provided nothing good. It was only to be cut down and, and used for fire. If I could modernize this and perhaps even southernize this, you could perhaps translate bramble as kudzu. The kudzu essentially says, yes, yes, I will reign over you, but nobody wants kudzu. It's a nuisance plant. It takes life and does not give life, it is good for nothing. Well, the same is true of the bramble. You get the point of the parable. Well done, you got yourself a king. But essentially, what you got is a bramble bush. It's good for nothing. Nothing good will come from this, only fire. And in fact, verses 16 through 20, Jotham goes on to give explanation of this parable, of this rebuke. He says in verse 17, my father fought for you, that is Gideon, risked his life for you, delivered you from the hands of Midian, And what have you done in return? You have risen up against my father's house this day, have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant or concubine, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. And then he speaks in some type of sarcasm. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam, obviously they had not acted in good faith and integrity, then rejoice in Abimelech. But, verse 20, if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and devour Abimelech. You hear what Jotham is saying. Abimelech will turn against you and you against Abimelech. As Jesus once said, a house divided against itself will not stand It's only going to bring destruction. And this is what's going to happen with this relationship. That is, you're only going to be destroyed from the inside out. And in many ways, Jotham's words were that of a prophet bringing about this curse upon Israel and upon Shechem in particular. But there is something interesting that I think is oftentimes missed in this passage because we do not know our Old Testament history perhaps as well as we should. Shechem was a place of notoriety in Israel's history. In fact, you can go all the way back to the days of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, when you first hear of Shechem, for we read when Abram came into Canaan, the first place that he went, the first place he stopped was Shechem. We read this in Genesis twelve and verse six, Abram passed through the land that is Canaan to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh, and that time the Canaanites were in the land. You hear what the author of Genesis is saying. Moses is saying Abram came to Shechem, and he came to the oak in Shechem. Did you notice in this passage in Judges chapter nine? where it is that they anoint Abimelech king. You can see it in verse 6. They anointed him by the yoke of the pillar at Shechem. You see why this was such a stinging rebuke by Jotham. It demonstrates how far they had fallen, that Abraham had come into this land, owning none of it, possessing none of it. And now they... Abraham's descendants possess all of it. Why was that? Because they were greater than Father Abraham? Of course not. It's because God promised it to them. He gave it to his descendants as a gift, as an inheritance. And they are Abraham's descendants, the inheritors. But how are they now using this gift that has been given to them? Because of a covenant faithful God that had made promise to their fathers, are they using it in a righteous way? No, they were using it in a completely unrighteous way for selfish and self-indulgent purposes. In fact, they were acting like the nations. Then to make it even worse, it was in Shechem that Joshua gathered all of the people. You can read of it. And in Joshua chapter 24, before his death, to renew the covenant with God. That is where Joshua gives those famous words, choose this day whom you will serve. But for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, the people had chosen, hadn't they? And they had not chosen the Lord. This is the place that is now being desecrated. That same oak, we don't know if it was the exact same oak as the oak that Abram stood under. But it is a oak in Shechem. They now make this worthless king, their ruler and their leader. It's here that they are breaking God's covenant again and again, the very covenant that they had renewed just a generation before. We see how far they had fallen. Shechem indeed was a spiritually significant place, but now it was a place of debauchery and of sin. Again, demonstrating how far they had fallen, how dark these days truly were. To go from Father Abraham and Joshua now to Abimelech. To go from faithfulness and righteousness to anything but, all in a relatively short time. This is an excellent reminder to us, a call to repentance for us as well. And when we reflect on the covenant faithfulness of God, how should we respond Shouldn't we not respond in gratitude? Should we not respond in gratefulness? We should not respond in this way like we deserve it, that it is our right, as it were, because God's freedom is a gift to us. God has been faithful every step of the way. Every promise, he is faithfully fulfilled. In fact, Joshua there at Shechem can say to all the leaders of Israel, as he is about to depart, as he is about to die, he can say these words, and now I'm about to go to the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. All has come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. What a testimony that Joshua can give of God's faithfulness, of God remembering all of His promises. And to that we can only add our yes and amen, even more so in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, do we live like that? Do we live in such a way that we are reminded of God's faithfulness, as we're reminded of God's promises to us? Can we have the certainty of God's goodness in the land of the living, So often we can live in fear and anxiety of what is going on, what is taking place, especially as we look at the state of affairs of this world and of our country. And at times I think we can act like Chicken Little, that the the sky is falling. No, the same Lord, who is the Lord of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joshua, is our Lord as well. Not one word of his, has fallen to the ground without being fulfilled. Not one word has failed. God will not fail. God cannot fail. If he has given his promise, he has given it to us to hold on to, to believe in, to trust, and therefore we can live in this world with with confidence, not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in our God, and what a relief that provides to us. Corey Tinboon famously said, If you look at the world, you will be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look to God, you'll be at rest. And that is a beautiful promise to us. So we can be at rest, we can be at peace, and we can remain faithful despite the world and despite the culture's unfaithfulness. And so let us be reminded never us to to hitch our ride to that which just seems popular or that which seems advantageous for today. Let's be committed always to what is right and what the Lord calls us to, even if that is very unpopular. As Jotham can say, if you've acted in faith and integrity, then all will be well. But if you have not, woe to you. And that is exactly what we see with Abimelech and Shechem, for we see in the third point this ruthless ruin. That is what we read in the second half of this chapter. We see that this honeymoon between Abimelech and Shechem was short-lived just three years, just three years before there was buyer's remorse. But we read in verse 23 why this was because God sent an evil spirit or a troubling spirit between Abimelech and and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. All is not well anymore. The two, not surprisingly, become a thorn to each other, but all of it is a part of God's judgment. And we can't go into all of the details of this demise, but suffice it to say that the Lord uses a political foe to bring about Abimelech's downfall. And that foe is that of Gale. You read of him in verse 26. Gale and his family move into Shechem, and all of a sudden, all the leaders of Shechem put their confidence in him. And, doc, and Gale goes on to speak words against Abimelech, speak some mighty words. In fact, as Dr. Dale Ralph Davis says in his commentary, this Gale has some gall at least when he is fortified with a little alcohol. Because he goes at the time of harvest when the grapes were being gathered, they begin to go into basically the the bar of Baal. And there he begins to speak some mighty words. Who is this Abimelech? Why should we serve him? If I were your leader, I would take him out. These people would be under my hand. I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. Well, as the word oftentimes does, it gets back to Abimelech. And for a megalomaniac like Abimelech, this is too much. Gael and Shechem need to be dealt with. And so Abimelech mounts up his troops and attacks. And we see the result. There is much death. There is much bloodshed. We see that all the leaders of Shechem escape into a stronghold, a tower. And Abimelech says to his leaders, to his military people, go cut brushwood and gather it around this tower. And I wonder, as the leaders of Shechem were there in this tower, seeing all of this wood pile up, I wonder if the words of Jotham was ringing in their ears, you have chosen the bramble to reign over you. And that is exactly what took place. This bramble or this brushwood as they cut it down and, and gather it around the tower was good for only one thing and that is fire. And that is exactly what Abimelech does. He lights the tower on fire and we read that a thousand men and women died in that fire. Well, this attack works so well that he decides to do it in the next town. But this time the Lord says enough. Because Abimelech, brimming with confidence and oozing with pride, is not too careful. And from a window, a woman of the town throws a millstone and crushes his head. And so there lies Abimelech, the great and mighty Abimelech, killed by a woman, It reminds me, does it not, of the words of Mary from this morning, that he has shown strength with his arm. God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, the exalted, and has exalted those of humble estate. The proud and those that set themselves up against God will always fall. Yes, they may have a time of reign, they may have a time of preeminence, they may have a time of prominence in this world, but they will all come to a similar ruin. Well, what is it that we can learn from a passage like this, a, a great story, but is that all there is? Well, I think this story is included in the Bible for our instruction, as is all of the stories. And one of the lessons that we need to learn here is the lesson of Leadership. Again, the contrasts between Abraham and Joshua and Abimelech are astounding. That is why leadership is not just choosing someone that looks like a leader or perhaps even acts like a leader or perhaps even has leadership capabilities or even political aspirations. We need to be reminded that what the Bible calls a leader is a leader in the heart, a leader that has character, a leader that has integrity, a leader that has godliness. That is true in any realm of leadership from the president of the United States to the leader of each and every home. And it's especially true in the church. That is why when we have officer nomination here, it's not just who can do the job? It's who is qualified for this job, according to First Timothy three and Titus chapter one. And what we read in those passages is that it does not lead the leave uh, does not lead us to the, the qualifications of of the elders or, or deacons, but rather those that can. Excuse me, it does not give the the function of those office, but rather the qualifications of the office. It does not just give the the description of who is capable of doing this, but who has the faithfulness to do this? Who is the one that has character and integrity and godliness? And that's why with the election this morning, I'm so grateful to have these men put forward that have these qualifications. Yes, all of our leaders, all of us as leaders fall short. Yes, we do sin. We need your prayers. But there must always be a striving a pursuit after holiness and godliness and doing what God desires. Because when that ceases, then you have, not long after, leaders like the leaders of Shechem and Abimelech going in the actual opposite direction when there is decline and dismal effects. And we have seen that and so many ways and in so many different organizations and so we must learn the lesson of leadership do not appoint leaders that do not demonstrate the the leadership of godliness and holiness again from this passage we see the true nature of sin and wickedness do we not what seems good brings ultimate ruin and that sin is not out there somewhere that enemy is not without it but it is within And we must recognize it. It is like a cancer that kills softly and quietly from within. It eats you from the inside out. And so, where there is sin in our own hearts and our own minds, we must always root it out. We must always put it off. And we need to put on godliness and holiness. The scripture tells us to put off the old man and to put on the new man in Christ, that new identity, to live in that new life. Because if we do not, we are playing with fire. And as your mom or dad once said, or children, your mom and dad now still say, if you play with fire, you will be burned. Or perhaps even better put, as Proverbs 6 says it, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes Not be burned. Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? The answer is obviously no. And so therefore, do not play with fire. Do not play with coals of fire. Do not play with sin or you will be burned. Lastly, this passage reminds us that the judgment of the Lord is real. That our God is a just God and he will render justice. The wickedness of the earth will not go unpunished. Again, it may not always look like fire from heaven. Oftentimes, it might be much more subtle. We read this passage, and you might think, well, these are just bad circumstances. No, this is the judgment of God. And we read of that throughout it, that God sent this evil spirit. And then the very end in verse 56, thus God returned the evil of Bimelech, which he committed against his father's and killing his 70 brothers. And God made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel Again, we see that this was truly judgment of God. And the Lord continues to do the same. Now, we may not always be able to discern what is judgment and what is not, but we must trust that God is still rendering justice and judgment upon this earth. And that is why we must end with this. We might want to read such a passage and say, Ha, Abimelech, you got exactly what you deserved. Leaders of Shechem, you got exactly what you deserve. And they did. But do we want what we deserve? Because if not, it is only by the grace of God that you and I go and do likewise. In fact, we are deserving of the same judgment and justice that Abimelech received, that the leaders of Shechem received. But we can thank God that there is a different ending to our story, that the Lord sent another, one that we celebrate at this time of year, his coming, his advent, one to live the righteous life that we could not live, to die the sacrificial death that we were not able to, to die or to bear. And he did so for me and for you. Because if we got what we deserved, we would deserve the same justice and judgment. But we did not receive that justice. Jesus received that justice for us. And we receive his grace and his mercy. And we are in desperate need of it at all times. And passages like this remind us of it again and again. And so does 1 Timothy chapter 1 when Paul says the saving, saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So as the foremost, Paul can say, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Indeed, Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners, of which we are foremost. And yet God has not rendered justice upon us. He rendered it upon his son so that we can receive his grace and his mercy and his love. Praise God. Amen. Lord, we thank you for passages like this. Lord, as difficult and as hard as they are to read, it really displays our true nature, the nature of humanity, the nature of mankind, and how quickly we are willing to go after that which seems advantageous, even though it may be wrong, even though it may be sinful, so that we would get ahead. Lord, would we shun such a way? Would we, Lord, not go after that which we would think is just good for us, but rather would we say, what is most faithful to our Lord? What is the way that is going to glorify Him? What is the steps of obedience that we can render unto our God and go in that direction, even if that direction is more difficult, more challenging, if it has us to surrender more of ourselves or to even endure persecution or afflictions. For Lord, we know that that is the way of the cross and the way of the cross is the way of true blessing. It's the true way of eternal life. And so, Lord, let us not follow after the ways of the world. Let us not follow after those that would try to promise the world but not able to deliver any of it. For you, O Lord, are the one that is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The earth and the fullness thereof is all yours, O Lord. And so may we always be on the side of the Lord, our King, the side of Jesus and him alone. Help us in it, O Lord, we ask. Would we be faithful to you? Would you give us your Holy Spirit? if we pray this all in Christ, our Savior's name. Amen.